The coronavirus has swept our globe, changed our way of life, and forced us to look at what we're willing to sacrifice for our own safety and for each other. But is going the distance on social distancing really worth it? How bad could it get if we throw caution to the wind and just get back out there? In this episode of Globally Heated, Sam and I will be guiding you through some visualizations of all these numbers we keep hearing about. And Alex goes on a rant. Prepare yourselves. They say a rant is in the ear of the beholder. Mm, no, no they don't. But rants aside, we're going to take a closer look at the statistics associated with COVID-19 and see why this pandemic has made life on our shared globe a little more heated. Hello to everyone out there just trying to exist in this quagmire that is life. I'm Sam. Yeah, if I pass out, it's because I'm closed in the closet, so... <laughs> Just nice. give me a second. And I'm Alex. Cool. Well, now would be a great time to mention that I spent all morning shoving what are basically pipe cleaners deep, deep into people's noses. And, and this, this is Globally Heated. Our little world is changing. And there is so much going on that it can be hard to get past the headlines, hyperbole, and sound bites, and into the nuances, complex facts, and really important yet overlooked crunchy nougat centers of disaster, climate, social issues, and everything in between. So join us each week as we travel with you down the rabbit hole to investigate the intersections of disaster and climate with our everyday lives and what we can all do with this crazy, hectic, rapidly heating world of ours. Welcome everyone to our first episode of Globally Heated. On this podcast, we're going to be discussing the numbers associated with COVID-19, also known as coronavirus, including mortality rates as well as a detailed overview of the processes of intubation and putting a patient on a ventilator. This may not be a discussion everyone is comfortable with or ready to listen to right now, especially this virus has already affected you or a loved one. You have our sympathies and understanding. And if this week's episode isn't for you, that's totally okay and valid. Our goal today is to help listeners get a bit of personal perspective on what the COVID-19 numbers mean for them for those around them, and for the world. So, let's get started. Today, there are a lot of discussions about mortality rates, percentage infected, at-risk populations, and a lot more. But oftentimes, the actual meaning of these things is hidden behind the vagaries of percentages, statistics, and numbers too large to immediately comprehend. So, we'd like to help visualize these things a little bit more clearly. We think visualization will help folks to understand the situation a little better and truly understand why things like social distancing, isolation, hand washing, and other precautions are so important. In other words, to get a more personal perspective on why we shouldn't just let this plague sweep through our nation and our globe and just accept the losses. Right, so what does a 1% fatality rate really look like? 
Does it mean if everyone is exposed, one out of every hundred people you know would die? Well, predictions are around 10% of people in the U.S. contracting the virus in the next few months. So that means that millions will be exposed and around 10 to 30 million will contract the disease. And that's with social distancing efforts. But since not everyone will contract the disease, not 1% of everyone will face that mortality rate. The R-naught for this disease, which is basically a measure of how easily the coronavirus spreads, looks to be about double that of the flu, with about 10 times the number of patients requiring hospitalization. Data also suggests that COVID-19 lasts between two and three weeks from inoculation to recovery or death. So let's take a look. Using these predictions to come up with some numbers, and we'll extrapolate what that means for the average person from there. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Globally Heated is brought to you today by CO2. Do you need something to exhale? Do you need a ready combustion byproduct? Do you need a plentiful, inexpensive greenhouse gas to lower your planet's albedo? How about a colorless, odorless, heavier-than-air, sublimating at room temperature solid? Try CO2 the cheap, effective solution to fires, global cooling, and boring weather. Warning, harmful or fatal if inhaled at concentrations greater than 800 parts per million. Consult your doctor. And welcome back. Okay, so we're visualizing what all these statistics around COVID-19 look like on a personal level. Let's start with a couple assumptions. Assumptions based on current data, and we can build from there. 2% mortality, 10% exposure. And to keep things simple, we'll say exposure is basically the same as contracting the virus. Even if you don't get bad symptoms, you still could spread it and still count. So statistically, one out of 10 people you know are likely to be exposed to the virus. In other words, they will come in contact with enough of it to cause infection even if they end up being one of those asymptomatic or low symptomatic carriers. If mortality is 2%, which seems to be what we're going for in the United States so far, two out of every 100 people that gets the virus will die. And 10% of people in the US seem to be very likely to get this virus. That means if the numbers outlined above by Sam hold true, out of every 500 people you know, around 50 will get the virus, and one of those people will likely die. So one in 500 doesn't seem that bad, right? That number can be easy to dismiss. I've taken college courses with hundreds of students in them. I can guarantee you if in the middle of my undergrad physics class, someone had just disappeared from the room, most of us wouldn't have noticed, unless it was the professor and then there would have been much rejoicing followed by much wringing of hands regarding grades and whether or not we'd be given the relevant integrals on our formula sheet for the next test. But let's think of the numbers this way. How many people do you know? There are myriad ways everyone from the New York Times to the NIH have tried to estimate how many people the average person knows. But in general, an American has acquaintances in the 200 to 
1,000 person range, depending, of course, on your social network size. Some of us have more friends than others, it's whatever. So basically, using the numbers we outlined, you're statistically likely to know 20 to 100 people that get the virus, and at least one person you know may die. But those numbers are looking at the low end of the stats, what's predicted based on the efforts we've made to social distance and slow the spread. Hopefully, we keep things close to that low end through our social isolation and hygiene efforts, most of which we should be doing anyway. Like, please wash your hands, folks. But without good, long-duration social distancing efforts that are taken seriously, we will have rebounds of this disease. And that's where it can get really impactful really fast. Yeah, I mean, 2% seems really small, right? That's less than sales tax in most places. But is it really that low? What does 2% mean on a personal scale? Like we've said, that could mean that you know someone who gets this virus and doesn't survive. And what if we don't take social distancing and other mitigation efforts far enough and rebounds cause exposure closer to 30%? This is still well below the DHS's prediction of about 60% infection rate if we make no mitigation efforts at all. Well, that means one out of every three people in the U.S. will get the virus. And current cases show around 5% of those people needing hospitalization. So let's all think of our closest friends, our immediate family. Think of 30%, one-third of that group. Imagine if you had a parent and a sibling or cousin and an aunt or uncle and two of your friends all get the virus. That would mean no contact with these people you care about for two to three weeks. Now picture all your friends. At least one would probably end up in the hospital with this virus. And one of the people you work or go to school with would be in there too. And probably one or two relatives. These are all people in the hospital. If you play in a rec sports league, several people on your team would get sick. And statistically, one or more people in that league may die. If the mortality rate is just 2%, which is lower than what it appears to be right now for the U.S., and 30% of people in the U.S. get infected, one of those friends or family that ends up in the hospital would, unfortunately, be statistically likely to be one of the fatalities. It's a sobering thought to realize that this virus, a thing too small to see, that stalks silently across the globe, will potentially kill someone each of us knows this year that we will all be scarred by this pandemic. This visualization and personalization of these numbers isn't to cause fear, but it's to help us all understand the personal impact this virus will have on us and why it's so important we do everything we can to slow or stop the spread so we can protect those people we care about. We can limit that personal impact if we all do our part. Wash our hands, keep distancing, and practice good hygiene. And we'll have to do it for quite some time still, probably a good chunk into the summer, if not longer. So I guess it's time to charge your phones, folks, because we're going to be FaceTiming like crazy. All the FaceTime. But what if we do nothing? What if we say, screw you, FaceTime, and just go out and meet people in public? 
there have been plenty of people that said they'd rather let this thing burn through. It's better to save the economy, let the virus reach out and touch almost every American unchecked. I personally hate this deification of the economy, like it's something we can't control and are totally at the mercy of. Let's sacrifice people's loved ones, grandparents, children, spouses with cancer, beloved science teachers living with lupus. Screw them. They're weak. Don't open health insurance enrollments or maintain quarantine measures to slow the virus at the expense of those poor, brave stock graphs. We can't let some little 2% mortality rate virus cut into the NASDAQ, cripple the Koch brothers companies, disrupt the Dow, ruin real estate, destroy Delta Airlines or topple Tesla. People we can reproduce, but those billions of dollars don't just grow on trees. Okay. Like Antarctic sea ice, things are maybe getting a little too heated here. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll visualize worst case scenarios and picture stopping them. This episode of Globally Heated was warmed up today by sneezing. Need a whole row on the bus to yourself these days? Give sneezing a try. Ready to end an awkward, overtly political ad hoc conversation your socialization-starved neighbor started with you while you were out walking? Throw some sneeze on it. Sneezing. It gets you all the personal space of a positive corona test without all the time and intensive care. Ask your doctor if sneezing is right for you. For God's sake, do it into your elbow. Okay, we're back. Alex's rant is over. I've calmed down. I apologize again. All good. We're moving on. So now let's take a look at how bad things could really get. What if almost everyone in the U.S. got the Rona? The Rona? Mm, how hip of you. <laughs> is this estimate going to happen? In a perfect world where everyone that needs a hospital bed gets one and there are no shortages of doctors or equipment and the mortality rate is a meager 1%? Mm, yeah, we live in a perfect world. I think we can go with that. Okay, so basically everyone in the U.S. is getting their very own collection of the virus known as SARS-CoV-2. Like 330 million people? Eh, let's call it 300 million. Some will escape it or naturally be immune. Ah, the basement dwellers, always escaping things. And it's a more round number, so it's easier to math, right? Damn straight. So, moving forward with the fun number to math, 300 million infected at some point in the next 12 to 24 months. And 5% would need hospitalization? Yep, still going with that 5%. And we're going to stick with only a 1% mortality. So let's see, first off, 5% of 300 million, carry the 14, divide by pi, multiply by the derivative of e to the x. It's 15 oh. million people in the hospital. I knew that. So pretty much the entire population of Florida. Well, the entire population of Florida is pretty much already in the hospital because they're very old or have been bitten by alligators. As a Floridian, I feel kind of attacked. Moving on. More than Pennsylvania and Nevada combined? That's a weird combination, but uh, we'll go with it. So how many people would die from the virus? Iowa. That's an entire state. It's not a massively populated one, but it's definitely not the lowest population by a lot. An entire state's worth of people could die in the U.S. if we did nothing? And the virus played nice? That's insane. Yeah. 
with no action and time to spread, you would know coworkers, friends, family, fellow students, people from your neighborhood picnics, if that's something people still do, celebrities, politicians, and podcast hosts that would get a sore throat, wake up one day fighting to breathe, call 911, go into intensive care in the hospital, get intubated, and possibly never come back out. Yikes. Wait, did you say podcast hosts? Well, not us, obviously. Well, hopefully not us. It could be us. But our pod is too new to die. Well, we need to wash our hands and stay six feet away from people then. No big parties except over the interwebs. Oh, dang it. My birthday's coming up too. Bad timing. Man. All right. Let's get back to that ICU thing real quick. So intensive care unit in the hospital. A lot of people think, well, even if I get sick, the hospital will have ventilators and they can breathe for me and get me through it. That might be nice. I personally hate having to remember to breathe all the time. It's exhausting. Well, I mean, it may sound great, but intubation and mechanical ventilation is actually a hugely traumatic medical procedure. That's absolutely true. In my time as a paramedic, uh, I intubated several patients, and especially doing it in the field, it is, I guess, the most delicately brutal thing I can ever imagine having to do to someone. It sounds terrible, honestly. We've actually linked a video of the process in our description. If you're squeamish, please don't watch it. And it's also on our website. Insert shameless self-promotion here at globallyheated.com. But here's a brief description from Alex of what actually happens to a patient with respiratory difficulty requiring intubation and ventilation. Note, if you're squeamish, super squeamish, mildly squeamish, any form of squeamish, this may be a good time for you to pluck out those headphones, go grab a cookie, take a potty break, not with the cookie, and come back in a couple of minutes. We'll put the timestamp in the episode notes so you can skip right ahead. Yep. Okay. So if you're leaving now, go ahead, leave. All right. They're all gone now. Let's get into the grim details of intubation. So what happens if you get COVID-19 and it gets so bad that you can't get enough air into your lungs on your own? Well, assuming you can get to a hospital in time and they aren't overwhelmed to the point of not having adequate resources, the doctors or paramedics or trauma nurses there will take a clear plastic tube, roughly the size of your pinky finger, but a lot longer, and they will insert it into your trachea. That's the part of your throat that goes into your lungs for those anatomically challenged of you out there. Yeah, super glad as an EMT, that's not in my scope of practice, but not something I would ever sit still for. Yeah. That uh, pesky gag reflex and the desire not to have foreign bodies in our lungs really gets in the way. That's why we paralyze you first. Wait, what? Yep. Assuming there aren't shortages of the needed drugs because of, oh, I don't know, an unchecked pandemic, the doctors or the paramedics will inject you with a sedative hypnotic, which is a drug that makes you not care about what's going on. And through the powers of retrograde amnesia, hopefully forget what happened. And also a paralytic, which keeps you from moving and fighting the intubation process. Sometimes 
it's an easy single drug like ketamine. Sometimes it's a two or three drug cocktail like etomidate and succinylcholine. Either way, the next step is visualization. Like we're doing here. Yeah, not quite. In intubation, we have to visualize, which is just the doctory word for C, the person's vocal cords. They're basically the front door to the lungs. So we do this using a curved metal tool called a laryngoscope. We use the laryngoscope to lift the tongue and jaw, peek in and find the vocal cords. Then we slide that endotracheal tube in. Now we can hook the patient up to a ventilator because this tube goes into their trachea and can provide air directly to their lungs. Now the patient can be hooked up to a ventilator, a machine that will decide how fast and how deep you breathe. And with this virus, even on a ventilator, patients still may not be able to breathe adequately. The virus can cause damage to the lungs that basically makes the airways unable to fully expand and too inflamed to allow enough air to get to the bloodstream from the lungs. Doctors have tried a lot of techniques to help with this, like laying patients face down. But life on an event is not a guarantee, nor is it enjoyable. And look, again, this isn't meant to be morbid. But it is. That's fair. But a lot of mention of ventilators makes them seem like a perfect life-saving certainty. They are incredibly helpful and save a lot of lives, but they are not a guarantee. And people need to think about what they may be going through or putting a loved one through if they take actions that increase their risk of exposure. When this disease does its worst, it's no ordinary trip to the doctor. It's no ordinary flu. So let's use this understanding to strengthen our resolve and get through this pandemic intelligently with as few exposures and definitely as few hospitalizations as possible. So moving beyond Alex's mildly concerning desire to describe intubation in every gory detail, <laughs> let's get back to that mortality rate of Iowa and all the numbers and data and percentages that keep getting thrown around. Right, numbers, that's what we were talking about. I forgot briefly we're using a mortality rate of 1%. That's how we wound up with a number equivalent to the population of Iowa dying from COVID. But let's talk about that percentage a little bit because it's a generalized percentage that we applied to the whole population. And it's a very low estimate, lower than what we're seeing in the numbers right now. And it can change depending on how specific you get with the location you're looking at, the demographics in that location, et cetera. Exactly. 1% is an average across an enormous number of people. But how does it change according to specific city, state, age demographic, poverty level, pre-existing condition, education level, gender identity, different dynamics of institutional racism and enraging realities of colonialism that exist to this very moment? Okay, okay, okay. Maybe we should just pick a couple of those. I'm more than willing to talk for hours on end, but I don't think everyone listening to this podcast is going to be up for sticking around that long. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone that wants to listen to you talk for that long either, so we'll, we'll just pick a couple easy ones. How's that? Yeah, all right. So let's talk about high population density, so cities versus rural areas, and communities that are already experiencing below standard levels of care due to discriminatory practices, both historical and current. So we're talking about low-income areas, majority-minority neighborhoods, the trans community, undocumented groups, among others. 
All right, so first up, cities. Bright lights, 24-hour diners, high culture, high rises, high wealth inequality, and fun to stereotype accents. Hey, I'm walking here. Is yeah, that was, close? That, no, that was terrible. <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, cities often have larger hospitals than rural areas, but they also have a far, far greater population density. This makes social distancing hard, especially when you consider different factors like public transportation, and it means even large hospitals can be quickly overwhelmed. New York City is a great example on all fronts here. Population density is extremely high. Large hospitals have been overwhelmed and public transportation is a huge factor. On April 13th, CNN reported that the overall mortality rate for COVID-19 in the US was 3.4%, while the state of New York was experiencing a mortality rate of 4.7%. That's right. Rural areas can certainly suffer from resource shortages and long distances between places, but that social distancing, whether inadvertent by rural areas or on purpose in areas less compacted than large cities, makes a big difference in the positive. And New York City and its surrounding counties currently have 93% of the cases in that state, which is insane when you think New York State has more cases in it than every country in the world except the U.S. So population density, amount of time the virus has been around, public transportation, and a whole slew of other factors plays into why New York City is experiencing the crisis they are. The fact that there are 27,000 people per square mile in the city is definitely a contributing factor. It absolutely plays into the higher risk of exposure and higher mortality rate. But it's not the only factor playing a role here. True. While with many rural areas, we're seeing fewer cases for the total population density, in New York City, we're not just seeing a higher rate of cases because of the higher population. We're also seeing disparities in which populations within the city are at higher risk. And you can actually cut lines around neighborhoods according to the demographics there and see marked differences. So let's insert a smooth segue here to our second subtopic, below standard levels of care due to economic and systemic inequalities. Poverty means lower access to care and testing, combined with increased rates of comorbidities, which are other health issues that make infection more likely and harder to survive. Yep. The coronavirus is out here taking advantage of redlining to the extreme. This is why mixed income neighborhoods and I don't know, maybe paying people a living wage is so fracking important, y'all. But I digress. So yeah, income and racial disparities are playing hard into the numbers here. The Intercept found that the highest positive test rates in the city are associated with the zip codes with the lowest estimated income and vice versa as is want to be the unfortunate but absolutely not an accident of history case in this country, those zip codes also happen to house majority minority populations. Shocker. Welcome to institutionalized racism that impacts economic inequality and disparities in healthcare quality and access, my friends. Definitely something we'll chat about at length at a later date. Yes, keywords at a later date. Only one rant per episode, it's in our contracts. 
fine. In the meantime, I'm going to quote The Intercept to give you all some numbers here. The death rate among Latino New Yorkers is 22.8 for every 100,000 people. Among African Americans, it is 19.8. In contrast, 10.2 of every 100,000 white New Yorkers has died from the new coronavirus. That's bananas. Bananas. It really is. I think we get so wrapped up in the numbers, especially people saying this virus is some great equalizer or whatever, that the fact that specific groups of people are at higher risk gets lost in all the percentages. People are out here like, oh, COVID only has a 1% mortality rate. It's not that bad. Yeah, maybe for your specific population, it only has a 1% mortality rate, but it's unlikely to have that same rate for every person you interact with, and your asymptomatic ass could kill someone because you wanted to go out and mingle. So, yeah, numbers can be confusing, and even kind of pointless without context. I would recommend checking out Our World in Data, which we have linked in the show notes if you want to learn more about how to understand these percentages and data sets that are floating around out there. Okay, my friends, here is where we get into what we have nerdily yet lovingly named the Cool It Toolkit. Cool It! Every episode, we'll spend a few brief yet wondrous moments discussing what the heck you and everybody else can do about this nutball world of ours and what's happening in it. You can find all of the resources and links we mention here through the Cool It Toolkit page on our website at globallyheated.com. And feel free to reach out if there is something you want to see that isn't there. Today, our biggest advice is be smart, y'all. Don't at me. I'll explain. Follow the CDC guidelines. Stay at home if you can. Wash your hands with soap and water every chance you get. No, hand sanitizer is not the same. And no, it's not better. And social distance, social distance, social distance. We've gone ahead and attached a couple of links to tutorials on making face masks to our show notes in case anyone out there is sewing inclined and wants to make a difference. Along with a couple of our favorite hand washing videos because they're fun and all of the source material we used to put together the episode this week. There are also links to find local food banks that you can use or donate to, whatever your situation may be. If you're feeling so inclined, we've also linked some ways to get involved with mutual aid and other networks helping our undocumented friends out there who don't get to partake in the stimulus package funds with the rest of us, but have to continue helping us all out as essential workers anyway. Send us an email or reach out to us on social media if you know of good work being done out there or if you're doing good work yourself. We would love to recognize anyone working hard to make a difference in their communities and around the world. Yes, indeed. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Sam, for teaching me, a millennial of advanced age, that the at symbol could be a verb. Anyway, I have a final note for our numbers-focused episode. So we talked about numbers being confusing, and it's important to have context. You may have noticed that percentages, especially for mortality and infection rates, varied across this episode. That was intentional. And it's really because no one's sure about these numbers yet. We're recording this episode April 16th. Things will change by the time you hear it. 
And right now, mortality looks like it could be anywhere from around two to two and a half percent on average in the US. But that's making assumptions about the number of undiagnosed COVID cases. The US mortality rate from purely COVID positive deaths versus COVID cases is more like 3%. But testing is still lagging very far behind. So the number of infected is likely to be much higher than what we've confirmed so far, which would lower the actual mortality rate. But we're not sure by how much. So in short, numbers are important, but they need to be treated properly and put in perspective. We tried to go with low estimates in this episode because they are still incredibly impactful. And we don't want to be hyperbolic. We just want to show people why it's so important to do everything we can to slow the spread of this disease and save people's lives, even if it does have a low mortality rate compared to what we initially expected or even are looking at today. We hope this episode helped you visualize what some of those numbers could mean and see the impact this virus will have and the positive impact your work to help stop the spread will have in thousands or even millions of lives saved. Well, the world is hotter, but hopefully we've all got a little more context for what's happening on it. That's all we've got for you guys this week. Thanks for listening to all of our shenanigans, and please subscribe if you want to hear more from us on a weekly basis. Feel free to leave us a review on any and all of your podcast apps. Five stars or above. That's how people find us. I mean, obviously, five-star reviews are the only review option. But anyway, also check out our website, globallyheated.com. Yes, we got the .com extension. We put podcast notes and blog posts about our crazy adventures in disasterdom and cool infographics that are not at all infographic designer selves mocked up for your visual edification. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Globally Heated, for updates on the podcast and blog. The music in this episode is by Kevin Cloud. Until next time, stay fluorescent, folks. Stay safe out there. Da 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 da